Deuteronomy chapter 22. Um, One of the reasons we are committed here at Trinity to preaching through books of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, is it doesn't let you skip over any difficult passages. And uh, today's passage, I think, would qualify as as a difficult passage. But another reason we want to work through the Bible together is our belief and conviction that all Scripture is profitable for God's people. So I trust that as we reflect upon this passage together today, by God's help, we will find that it is indeed profitable for, good, for the good of God's people. Uh, this is a passage which deals with some sensitive issues. Uh, related to human sexuality. So just a heads up, we will be covering those topics today as we look at Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 30. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and And brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, He has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet, this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. And the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, Then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, And the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman, 
She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Well, the Bible is a book about the marriage of God and his people. The Bible is an epic love story from beginning to end, beginning with the marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden and culminating in the marriage supper of the Lamb as the new Jerusalem descends as a bride adorned for her husband. And if those bookends were, were not enough to clue us into what is happening in the story of Scripture, right at the center of our Bibles, we have a book known as the Song of Songs. The greatest song ever written. That's the meaning of the title, Song of Songs, in which we find the bridegroom and the bride delighting and rejoicing in one another's love. And so it's no wonder that when the true hero of the story, the Lord Jesus himself, appears on the scene, he is revealed as the true bridegroom. And it's no wonder that, according to John's gospel, he first manifested his glory at a wedding feast by turning water into wine. And just a couple of chapters later in John's gospel, Jesus then goes out of his way to seek a woman. And this is none other than the Samaritan woman who has been married to five different men and is now with another man. And Jesus comes to her to offer her living water. He comes to offer her himself. And so again, it's no surprise that John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the true bridegroom. Because the Bible really is a story, a love story from start to finish. And so to really understand these laws in Deuteronomy 22 about marriage and sexuality, we, we must keep that bigger story in view. And when we do, we are confronted with the fact that we have made a mess of marriage and sexuality whether we're married or not. These laws speak honestly about how distorted marriage and sexuality and family life have become in a fallen world. But 
But more than that, they expose the deeper reality of our spiritual adultery and infidelity, which is the source of all of the unfaithfulness and sexual brokenness that we see in our world. And so with the bigger story of Scripture in view, I want to look at these case laws together, which are really an expansion upon the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And so first of all, I want us to look at um, the accusation of marital infidelity in verses 13 through 21. And then secondly, we'll look at the various cases of sexual immorality found in verses 22 through 30. And then finally, we'll think about how these rules relate to God and the gospel. So let's begin with the accusation of infidelity in verses 13 through 21. At the heart of the story of man's fall into sin and misery is the story of a broken marriage. Story of a broken marriage. This broken marriage begins with Adam's failure as a husband to guard and protect the garden and to protect his wife from the serpent, which he should have grabbed and slapped against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had been given the power and the royal authority to do so, but rather than subduing the snake... The man stood there subdued, stood by as the serpent deceived the woman. And then he became like the serpent himself, accusing his wife and shifting the blame to her. Remember when he was confronted, he said, It was because of the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. And perhaps, perhaps this explains something of why these case laws begin the way they do here in Deuteronomy 22. Notice that when Moses begins to elaborate on the seventh commandment, he begins by addressing the problem of husbands making false accusations against their wives. This is apparently a common problem in a fallen world. I think that is confirmed by the fact that this is a case law taken as a typical case. And the law is intended to give judges principles for justice with the clear concern of this rule being to protect the woman from a husband who maliciously accuses her. Notice the concern here for the honor of her good name. You can see it clearly in verse 14 and in verse 19. The clear intent of the law is to provide a strong deterrent to any husband who might be tempted for selfish reasons to make such a false accusation. He faced severe consequences for doing so. A whipping, a public whipping, and a steep fine, 100 shekels. We need to try to understand the accusation that he's making for a moment, and I'm going to try to be as discreet and delicate as I can here. The majority view is that there was 
there was no blood found on the wedding bed or the wedding couch when the marriage was consummated. And so the man brings an accusation of sexual misconduct, sexual infidelity, with the blood being evidence of the woman's virginity. That, that is, that is the, probably the majority understanding, the majority reading of this text. But in reality, it's not a very reliable test. By no means scientific <laughs> Um, it doesn't always work that way. Furthermore, there, there is another way to render the Hebrew of this passage so that the cloak provided by the parents is evidence of the woman's monthly cycle, her period prior to the marriage, which would show she was not pregnant. But in either case, However, this case law is supposed to be understood. The clear concern is for the honor of the woman and to protect her from the false accusation of a malicious man. And so if the man makes an accusation and the parents present counter evidence of their daughter's innocence, then the uh, accuser is subject to corporal punishment. There's a kind of role reversal that takes place here. He attempts to defame her in the eyes of the community, but the result is he is publicly disgraced. Furthermore, he is never allowed to divorce her for as long as he lives. Now that might sound like a sour deal for the woman, but here's where I think it is vitally important for us to account for a vast cultural difference in a society where it would have been very difficult for the woman to remarry. This meant the, the woman had even greater protection in such a context. The man could not ruin her reputation and then willy-nilly issue her a certificate of divorce and leave her with nothing, in a state of utter vulnerability. He was, he was bound by the law to fulfill his marital vows to protect and provide and care for her. And I think it's also right to say that if he refused to do so, she was not under bondage. Uh, she was free. We find that principle in another case law in Exodus 21 verses 10 and 11, and that same principle would surely apply here. And so the interests of the vulnerable woman are protected and safeguarded by this case law. This, this is a theme we've already seen and we will continue to see running throughout the book of Deuteronomy. The law's intent to protect the weak from the abuses of the strong. And this brings us to the various cases of sexual immorality in verses 22 through 30. These different cases include uh, adultery, um, seduction, rape, and incest. And I do think there is a sense of escalation in these cases. It begins with adultery 
involving a married woman in verse 22. This is a consensual situation. Okay? One which implies that there was no force, no coercion whatsoever involved. Also important, I think, is the language of discovery, right? There are, there are witnesses or else the accusation does not stand. And here we are being reminded that the punishment for adultery under the old covenant, the punishment for adultery was capital punishment, punishable by death. If a man was found sleeping with another man's wife, and it was a consensual relationship, both the man and the woman must die. That raises a question, why? Why is the penalty so severe? Why the, why the death penalty? Well, I think one reason has to do with Israel's unique status at this point in redemptive history. You remember, Israel was not, Israel was not a nation among nations. Israel was a holy people led into a holy land where God dwelled in their midst and Israel's land and Israel's people were to be an earthly image and reflection of the heavenly holy kingdom of God. It's why the Canaanites had to be driven out. It's, it's why things like sexual immorality had to be purged from the midst of Israel. You notice that's the rationale that's given throughout our text in verse 21, verse 22, and verse 24. Purge the evil from among you, or from Israel. So again, we need to remember Israel's unique status at this point in redemptive history. Israel was a theocracy and its purpose was to be an earthly embodiment and picture of the heavenly kingdom of God. God's people are no longer a theocratic society or body in that same sense. And death, the death penalty no longer applies. Under the new covenant, sexual sin is not punishable by death. Sexual sin is forgivable, but there are, there are still reasons why sexual immorality poses a serious threat to God's people. One being sexual immorality is never merely a private matter. We see that throughout this text, the corporate concern. It's never merely a private matter, but it also has the destructive power to tear apart families and to even destroy entire kingdoms. It's striking how the specific sin of adultery served as a tragic turning point that resulted in a domino effect for the Davidic dynasty. So consider this example with me for a few moments. Before the sin with Bathsheba, the glory of King David's reign was on the rise. But one lustful look from the rooftop did something that Goliath himself could never do. Right? David's lustful look 
led to a downfall and a descending sequence of events. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, which results in a cover-up and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. You see the chain of events, how adultery leads straight to death. David sleeps with Bathsheba, and the next thing he does to cover it up is to kill someone. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet is sent to confront David for his sin, which leads David to to genuine repentance, to God's forgiveness. God does not kill David for his crime. He, He puts his sin away. And this shows us that these case laws that we are looking at this morning were were never intended to be woodenly, rigidly applied to uh, individuals without consideration of individual circumstances. They were intended to teach God's people the weightier matters of the law. We'll come back to that uh, in a few minutes and consider it in more detail. But we do need to recognize there were still terrible consequences that came as a result of David's sin. Uh, The child that was conceived with Bathsheba dies. And in 2 Samuel 13, we can see more of this domino effect as it plays out in the lives of David's other children. As his son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar which results in the deep resentment of David's other son, Absalom, who not only leads a rebellion against his father, but a coup that culminates with Absalom trying to humiliate his father, get this, by sleeping with all of David's concubines under a tent on a rooftop. Everything forbidden in the case laws in Deuteronomy 22, is found in this messy and tragic story. It begins with adultery, and it ends with incest. David's and the kingdom's unraveling is Deuteronomy 22 in a nutshell. David's son, Absalom, sleeps with his father's concubines in a tent, on a rooftop, reminding us where this story began, with one lustful look from a rooftop. And when you look at how these stories unfold and the devastation that it brings, it helps us to see the wisdom and the truth and the justice of God's law. Gives us a glimpse of the horizontal and the social consequences of sexual sin. The next set of laws is is found in verses 23 through 27. Now there are two distinct cases here, and it's it's crucial really for us to recognize that. Both involve sexual immorality with a betrothed virgin. Uh, betrothal does not mean engagement. Betrothal is not a synonym for our notion of engagement. It's, it's more strong than that. It involved a formal family agreement. Okay? And in the first situation, the relationship between the man and the betrothed virgin is presumed to be consensual because the woman was in a city where others would have heard her cry for help 
but she didn't cry out. In, in this case, the death penalty is required for both the man and the woman, just like the case of adultery in verse 22. Now, that, this raises all kinds of questions, right? What if the woman was prevented from crying out? What if she was, what if she was being threatened if she cried out? What if she was just so traumatized that she couldn't cry out? What happens in different scenarios than the specific one mentioned here? Again, it's really important to understand that these case laws were meant to provide general examples to teach Israel's leaders basic principles of justice. Biblical case laws are not an exhaustive guide to be woodenly applied, right? When a, when a case came up before a judge, it wasn't as though he could turn to chapter and, and verse and say, okay, here's the situation here without any consideration of extending circumstances and, and render a verdict. It's not how it worked. That would be a profound distortion of the law. In fact, this is precisely how the Pharisees misused the law. These case laws are illustrative examples meant to be applied with wisdom and discretion to varying circumstances. They were meant to teach God's people about the, what the weightier matters of the law required. Things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so we're meant to see underlying principles here. Like if it was consensual, right? If the man and the woman both lay together willingly, well, then they're both responsible. But if it was not consensual, if there was an element of force or coercion, well, then that's an entirely different case altogether. And that's what becomes clear in the second situation where the relationship is presumed to be non-consensual because it occurred in the country where the woman had no one to hear her cry. This is, this is only one of many of examples we can find in the Old Testament expressing God's concern for the status and welfare of abused women. And in this case, she is raped without the possibility of intervention. And notice that in this case, it is the man alone who is, is to suffer the consequences. Once again, the concern is not only to protect her from disrepute, but actually to hold her up high in esteem. Verse 26, it doesn't come through very clearly in the English, but verse 26 in Hebrews, a Hebrew reads like a, a, a legal acquittal. You shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. And so she is publicly declared innocent to clear her name and restore her honor in the eyes of the entire community. She has done nothing wrong, so she should bear no shame, nor should she suffer any negative consequences because of what was done to her. See, the intent, once again, is to protect and to maintain the honor of the woman. Now, the next case in verses 28 and 29 involves 
an unmarried and unbetrothed woman taken by a man, and he lays with her. If they are found, then the man must give 50 shekels of silver to the father of the woman, and if she desires, it's agreeable with the family, he, he must marry her again with no option for divorce as long as he lives. And again, at first glance, this may seem deeply troubling. It appears to give the rapist the right to marry his victim, but that is not the case. It's not what's going on here. As the parallel passage in Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17 makes clear, the woman was under no obligation to marry the man who had violated her. Nevertheless, once the man has taken the girl's virginity from her, he had no right to back away from the responsibilities of that relationship. Another way of putting it is once he took the privilege of marriage, he's not allowed to back out of the responsibility of marriage. That's the whole point here. He had to pay the bride price, and if consent for marriage was granted, the man could never divorce the woman as long as he lives. No matter what she did, he had to care for her, protect her, and provide for her. And this brings us to the last case in verse 30 involving incest. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. It's the law disallowing relations of affinity. And it's striking to, to note that this is precisely what Paul rebukes the Corinthians for in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, likely his stepmother. And Paul goes on to say, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And listen to this language. Let him who has done this be removed from you. Do you hear the echo there? Do you hear the echo of Deuteronomy 22? Purge the evil from among you. Let him who has done this be removed. See, under the new covenant, it's a call for church discipline to remove the unrepentant from the covenant community. Under the new covenant, the church is, a, is, is not, a, it's not a theocratic government bearing the power of the sword. The church is a spiritual nation, and so we do not execute the penalty through the power of of the sword, but the church is called to the faithful exercise of discipline in cases of scandalous and unrepentant sexual sin, in addition to other sins as well. Now, this brings us to the final thing I want us to think about, and that is how these laws relate to God and the gospel. As you reflect, step back for a moment from the details of these laws and undoubtedly many of the questions that remain unanswered in our minds as we reflect on this passage together. Ask the basic question, what do these laws reveal about God? 
What is his heart? What is his desire revealed in these case laws? Notice the repeated and strong concern to protect the rights of the innocent and the weak. In these cases, God is especially, particularly concerned not only with restraining sexual immorality in a fallen world, but also rendering justice for the weak. God demands that the rights and the reputation of women be maintained in a world where men often held all of the power and things tended to go in their favor. The law vigorously protected her rights and ensured her provision. But we also need to appreciate how these rules point us to a spiritual reality. Because in Scripture, the problem of adultery and sexual, other sexual sins are applied beyond the individual to the corporate people of God. We need to appreciate this, that the Old Testament prophets, their claim was not that God's people are like an adulterous spouse. Their accusation is that God's people are the adulterous spouse. God's people are not just like an adulterous woman, they are the adulterous bride. Think about the story. When God rescued Israel from Egypt, Moses was sent to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And we've talked about this before, how in Hebrew that language, let my people go, is actually divorce, official divorce language in the Old Testament. Because Israel was spiritually bound to the gods of Egypt with Pharaoh as their representative. And God, through Moses, demanded a divorce so that he could enter into a covenant relationship with Israel. And at Mount Sinai, God entered into a marriage covenant with Israel. That's what Mount Sinai is. A marriage covenant in which God declares his love for Israel and makes his vow to be her God and to have Israel as his very own. But after God redeemed Israel and brought her out from place of slavery, and after God entered into a marriage covenant and then led his people into a good and spacious land and blessed them lavishly, she abandoned her husband and went after other gods. The prophet Ezekiel says she lavished her whoring on any passerby and her beauty was given to another. You see, the story of God's people is a story of spiritual adultery. Ezekiel describes this in graphic detail after the Lord cared for Israel when she was utterly helpless after he he spread his garment over her and made his marriage vow to be her God and the Lord washed her and cleansed her with oil and clothed her in fine linens 
and adorned her with gold and silver jewelry and placed a beautiful crown upon her head. After all of that, Ezekiel says, Israel played the whore and went after other gods. Think of the prophet Hosea who was sent by God to accuse Israel of marital infidelity and spiritual adultery. There was no lack of evidence in the case. The people were unfaithful. And Hosea became a living picture of this deeper spiritual infidelity as he was instructed to take to himself a wife of whoredom and to have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so just as Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, the land in which God dwelled in their midst, Israel, God's bride, was exiled from the land for her unfaithfulness. See, this bigger story helps us understand that the concern of Deuteronomy 22 is not simply the sanctity of marriage, but ultimately about what marriage points to and symbolizes. Israel as a people and a kingdom was not just another kingdom among kingdoms. She was God's precious possession. As holy nation, his holy bride, and he is a jealous husband. Israel was a theocratic body designed to be an earthly picture of God's holy heavenly kingdom. She was God's spouse, united to him in a holy marriage covenant. But she ran after other gods. She served idols. And that deeper spiritual reality was often manifested in distortions of God's good purposes for marriage and human sexuality. In fact, the book of Judges, which we we know is a book that confirms that Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes, one of the primary ways the author of the book of Judges helps us to understand this spiritual infidelity is by documenting the way the men of Israel treated the women of Israel. Now the church today is no longer a theocratic nation state like Israel, but the church is God's possession, a holy people, the bride of Christ. In the new covenant, we belong exclusively to Jesus because he has redeemed the church with his own blood, and he purifies her by the washing of water with the word to present her to himself in glorious splendor that she might be holy and blameless before him. So what does all this mean? What does all of this mean for for us when, when we have made a mess of marriage and our own sexuality? We see this bigger story as we See, Deuteronomy 22 in that larger context shows us that Jesus takes to himself an unclean bride with a sordid past, and he does it to make her clean. Listen to Paul's words to the Corinthians who were such a mess. He says, do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that emphasis on sexual sins. Then he goes on to say, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, friends, the good news, the good news for people who have done things that they regret, for people who have had things done to them that they wish had never happened, good news in Jesus is this. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're forgiven. You're accepted in God's sight. You've been washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were justified. You were sanctified. You were set apart by God. You belong in body and soul to Jesus now. Therefore, the ethical imperative of the gospel comes to us in all of its force. Put to death sexual immorality. That's the new covenant application of these case laws. Put to death sexual immorality and all impurity because it must not even be named among us as is fitting among the saints. Ephesians 5 verse 3. This is why Paul called the Corinthians to remove the one guilty of incest from the church. Because the church, the church is a holy people forgiven freely of all manner of sexual sin. But the church is also a place where unrepentant sexual sin must never be tolerated. Because we belong to Jesus. And that has direct consequences for how we think about marriage and sexuality. And so while these laws demonstrate God's concern for the honor and protection of the woman, as we're going to see more clearly here as we come to the Lord's table, is a representative figure throughout Scripture. They, these laws, they also anticipate God's concern for an unclean bride, someone who would have been unsought by the standards of this world. Jesus did not come down from heaven to find for himself a clean and spotless bride. He came into the world for the Samaritan woman who is all of us. You see, what Jesus does completely upends the expectation that only the pure woman would be sought and taken and received in marriage. In Christ, the order is reversed as the Lord joins himself to those who, who are polluted and unclean, those who have sinned and been sinned against and carry shame. And he removes the shame. He takes it away and he purifies her. He washes her. He clothes her in the spotless garments of his own purity. And he crowns her with glory and honor. He dignifies and delights in her. He presents her to himself in splendor when once she was nothing but a reviled and defiled and iniquitous 
woman. You see, friends, this is our spiritual story. This is the story of our lives. This is the grace that we have received as the beloved bride of Christ. This is what our faithful bridegroom has done for us. And so let us say together, hallelujah, what a savior. And let's celebrate that as we come to his table together. Let's pray first. Our Father in heaven, oh, we confess to you that we are so unfaithful. Thank you that you sent your son and that from heaven he came and sought us to be his holy bride. And that for our life, he died. We thank you and we pray this in his name. Amen.